Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. And welcome to the Hopcast, episode number 130. My name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Thrillers. Suspense. Crime. And mysteries. Welcome to the show. Our guest this week is Alison Stockham, who joins us from her home in Cambridge. So uh, you'll have to forgive me indulging in talking about... Oh, you both did. Uh, well, it a, yeah. But it was sweet. It was no, sweet. but I mean, I just, you know, I'm proud of my home city. And so you should be. I'm proud of my hometowns of Stafford. And 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 so you are. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a lovely conversation with Alison. She is a, a writer of psychological fiction and uh, it was a terrific interview. It was, yes. Yeah, she's a very busy lady, isn't she? Because she also um, does a lot of work for the Cambridge Literary Festival. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, and kids and everything. So it's yeah, like everyone we speak to, they're busy. But that's <laughs> yeah. what we. Because nobody says I'm a writer and I'm bored. <laughs> no. Uh, if you can detect, uh, my voice is a little rough this evening. Uh, well, you, you said that in a way that you actually didn't quite like it. it. It's just, I mean, you you know, it's hard to judge sometimes, but it's just a little rough because I've spent the entire day. It feels in my studio. I know, uh, it's like you haven't been here. I know, it's been absolutely... Well, I've got a big project, which I think I mentioned before, on Greek philosophy that I'm narrating, and the deadline is Tuesday, and I'm mm, a significant way off that yet. And it's been one of the most technical reads. Is, it, is the deadline really Tuesday? Well, in terms of they want it by Friday, but I'm not here Wednesday, oh, Thursday, okay. Friday. Yeah. For various reasons we'll explain later in the programme. But So I've really got to crack on. And um, I pushed myself very hard today uh, in the in the studio, and it just gets to that point where it's funny. It, it's a, it's a twin edged sword, so my diction is really clear. Can I just ask a question? Aren't all swords twin edged? Um. Yeah. Okay. I, I I don't know. Anyway, go on. Thanks for that. No, I think samurai swords aren't, are they? Uh. Mm. There's only one sharp sharp edge um, along the, the length of a samurai sword. Okay. I should know that, shouldn't I? Yes, you should. Anyway, thanks for the interruption. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I've lost my train of thought now. Dictation. Diction. 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 No, your diction improves with the repetition of... Uh, you, you read more without fluffing. Yeah. But at the same time, your voice quality drops gradually. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, you, you could say... Uh, narration is your skill so you could do it seven days a week eight days eight hours a day but actually you couldn't no I couldn't and absolutely I'm, I feel mentally wrung out doing it because it is to a large extent sight read and so I'm trying to interpret the text and get the right emphasis as I do it and, and it's not it, the easiest text to do oh, that with boy is it not easy but it, I mean it's fascinating it's absolutely fascinating I'm doing something about the it's the the first bit I've been doing probably about the first two-thirds of the book is about the pre-Socratics of uh, of Greece um, and their extraordinary... Some of them were very close to figuring out the basis of the natural world um, in terms of atoms and things like that. But, you know, they went off beam well, look, you a know, little bit. That's interesting you said that because I've read that as well, that um, unless you've studied... Greek philosophy you don't realize that that they were they actually knew a lot more than they're given credit for by your average person yeah they'd always be you know they get close and then there'd be one thing they assume that skews the whole mm. philosophy and you know makes it inaccurate but they were getting there 
But they and didn't have the they didn't have the technical. Well, they had no to technical. Test it, did they? No, no, no. It was all, it's largely by observation and by um, by thought. So yeah, it's been fascinating, but hard. Anyway, I digress. Let's get into our news segment, and you've been picking out the stories this week for us. I have, because um, you've been in the booth. Um, the first one, it, I saw it on Twitter during the week, and um, anything about small independent publishers always mm. catches my eye because mm. that's what we are. And I hadn't actually come across these people before. Um, Henning, Henningham Family Press. Have you heard of the Henningham Family Press? I haven't heard of the Henningham Family Press. No, so it's a, it's a couple, very similar to us, David and Ping Henning, Henningham. Uh, they've been going a lot longer than us, but uh, they are a very niche press so uh, but i quite like what they do it's i think they sort of they were artists first or in the art world and um they have a combination between a publisher and a binary so it's piqued my interest because we went to see a binary bindery right Bi- binary what am i talking about yeah bindery you're yes. going into a whole different zeros kind of and words ones <laughs> yeah yeah so um they have recently had some difficulties um, based on um, a rejection for their latest arts council application, right. which is really sad. I mean, they, you know, being a literary fiction, uh, very mm. niche press, they they uh, relied on, rely on support. On that, yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, so they started their press in two thousand and six, um, and their aim was to put affordable art books in people's homes. So they create these beautiful. Um, bound books that they bind themselves and they get their, their clients include people like the VA, um, art museums, but also mm. individuals as well. Um, but without art funding, it, it's just become impossible. So art they, Council funding sorry, withdrawal. Art, art, art Council funding. Arts Council, yeah. Um, so they started a crowdfunding um, campaign, you know, like many people do, thinking, well, what have we got to lose? And um, it's been very successful, so they're quite happy now that, that you know they've been able to because they've got they've got plans to expand, but they just couldn't do it, and they they couldn't even maintain what they were doing. Never mind these sort of plans that they had. They were they were going to seek um, investment mm. for their plans, but they needed something to carry them through in the meantime. So they've done it, I think. So, well, so, increasingly, I think crowdfunding is going to become um, a part of the scene for independent publishers and you know don't think it hasn't crossed our minds as well um because it is extremely tough and although we can't say anything we heard that you know a comparable publisher appears to yeah, be on, on its way out i know and and that gave us a bit of a jolt didn't it um, it did i mean we've had a week i mean we're celebrating and um, if you, get, you subscribe to our newsletter then you'll know this uh, which rebecca sent out earlier today that it's the third anniversary of us first publishing a book, in fact, a trilogy, by Robert Dawes, the rock series uh, based in Gibraltar. Uh, So that really is an opportunity um, for us to sort of take stock, really, celebrate Mm. that we've done three years. And also we signed off our annual accounts this week, so, again, (laughs) (laughs) taking stock. And, you know, let's let's not beat around the bush. It's the third year of losses. Yeah. For Hobeck. Yes. Uh, I always find going to the accountant very scary, but also uplifting in a, in a way, because our, our accountant's really good at sort of bucking us up a little bit, isn't she? And mm. putting a realistic spin on things. Um, yeah. So. Yep. Yeah, it, it, there's a lot to, to think about, but that is that is the cold reality. You know, it's funny, I had a message from a friend of mine who was saying, oh, so pleased with the success you're having with Hobeck and you and Rebecca and everything. And I didn't want to reply because we'd spent the week thinking <laughs> we're not successful and we're struggling and it's a constant battle. And, um, well, frankly, you know, there are days when it feels like it's not worth it. No, on. and like I put in the, and in others the, it is in the newsletter. We show, we've shed a lot of tears hmm. over the three years, and yeah. some of that has been good tears. But you know, there's a lot of frustration and um, disappointment, and you know, it's it's. A, I hate to use the cliche roller coaster. I don't like going on roller coasters, but it really has been a roller coaster. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, and uh, so that's that's an honest. I mean, we promised in this podcast to be honest, and that's the facts mm. um so anyway uh, let's celebrate the fact that uh that family press have, have found some funding yeah it is uh, good news. what's our next story okay um so i don't know how aware you are of threads 
Yes, I am aware of Threads. It's the uh, newly launched uh, by Meta, which is the parent company of both Instagram and Facebook. It's their version of Twitter. So basically it's Mark Zuckerberg's slap in the face for uh, Elon Musk, isn't it? Yeah. So it was launched on the 5th of July, which is 10 days ago. Um, And very quickly, a lot of people joined Threads. Now, the reason that happened is because it's so easy to join. Um, although it's it was a new social media platform, because it's linked to um, Instagram, when you join threads, all your followers and all the people you are following on Instagram immediately follow suit. You know, you don't have to follow individuals. Okay, right. So, um, there's an article in the bookseller about threads, uh, about publishers, and, and it seems that the, most of them have embraced it very quickly. Um Pan Macmillan apparently was the first of the big four to actively start using the platform. Um, they, you know, they seem quite optimistic about it. That they're saying that it's not necessarily going to replace Twitter completely, but because it is a Twitter-like platform um, with um, links to Facebook and Instagram, yeah, it, it actually might be a very credible rival to Twitter. If you know, what no, I, mean. I, yeah. I don't doubt it because Twitter has got enormous problems. Elon Musk has done nothing but smash it up. Um, And, you know, it's become such a toxic environment to exist on that, uh, you know, I don't spend a lot of time with Twitter anymore. Personally, I barely ever post. I really don't enjoy. I mean, I use it as a sort of I pick up stories and things that I perhaps have missed, which the mainstream media aren't covering. But um, a lot of it is just bilious rubbish i see as hobeck i use twitter a lot Mm. and in fact um i tweeted today because we are um we're now about 70 away from five thousand followers and it's taken me what three Three and a half years three and a half years yeah yeah. so april we joined three three years three and a bit well i I know we talked about this when when elon musk took over and and you know people were abandoning it and you didn't want to abandon it or you know we're worried about it because you spent so much time trying to build our following. But the, the, so the thing about threads, so we are on threads and yeah. we did join, we didn't join on the day. We joined the following day. Um, it, the thing that reassured me, I suppose, was the fact that it wouldn't be starting from absolute scratch. Um, but it just means now I publish on Twitter, on threads, on Instagram, on Facebook, TikTok occasionally. I have been using TikTok again a bit more and it's, <laughs> It's exhausting. Well, it is exhausting, and you know this is this is what they don't tell you in um, you know independent publishing school, do they? <laughs> if there was such a thing, I think we were both daydreaming that day. Yeah, probably. I mean, it, it, yeah, it is exhausting. Trying to maintain a business profile in the modern age is exhausting, and it's very hard sometimes to figure out what's working, what's not, whether it's having any impact, positive or negative, uh, at all. Um, and you know that's one of the sort of things you take stock of when you get to three years, um, you know, uh, in, into business. And it, it, I just don't know sometimes. I mean, you do hear an- anecdotally it's doing wonders for X and Y, but uh, that isn't something that's necessarily repeatable by all. No, indeed. Um, the story I wanted to mention, and I mean, I'm do- doing this off the hoof. I haven't got anything in front that's of fine. me. <laughs> but you, you may notice in the news that earlier this week, um, the new film Oppenheimer was opening in London and it stars Killian Murphy um, as Robert Oppenheimer. And it's been made by um, Christopher Nolan. None of those names mean anything to me. What? <laughs> well, Killian Murphy's the star of Piggy Blinders and... Um, he's in this film. It's about Robert Oppenheimer, the man who led the Manhattan Project to create the atomic bomb during World oh, War II. Okay, okay. Anyway, he and the stars of the film, it's a pretty star- starlit cast, I have to say, um, <laughs> they uh, walked off the premiere about halfway through on the red carpet and whatever because the Screen, screen Actors Guild in America declared a strike in for Hollywood stars, uh, Hollywood performers. Okay. And um, and this joins a writer's strike that's also going on at the moment. And this is over the feeling that, well, a couple of things. Uh, first of all, they're worried about the impact of AI I was gonna say, in I the creative that. process. That's one of the things. And also being underpaid, particularly on um, streaming services who are picking up made you know content made before yeah. and not paying the same residuals that, say, network television has paid in the past. Uh, okay. So they're trying to protect jobs, but most of the time they are saying, look, you know, 
we're worried we're going to get replaced by AI because it's cheaper. And so there's, it's a big strike. And the writer's strike's been going on for ages. And this one could roll on for months as well. Now, the reason I mention it is because, obviously, it's another side of the creative industry, a very powerful one. The actors are very, very unified and voted for strike action. But um, it, it, it's, again, the threat of AI which is prompting this, uh, one half of that, of that uh, dispute. And uh, I had to check because I'm being, on this narration book project that I'm doing, I'm being paid sag after rates. So Screen Actors Guild have um, negotiated certain rates in the United States for narrators. So I get a, you know, a set rate yes. per hour. And I wondered whether I would be swept up in the strike or not. It turns out I'm not. And well, indeed, broadcast news people. March around the house with a placard? No, not at all. But I would have to <laughs> withdraw my labour. And, and, and even though I'm not a member of the, the union, if, if I broke the strike, and it, if it affected me, then I would be potentially blacklisted. Oh, and did you find out? This? Yeah, I've checked it out. and I'm fine. But, um, yeah, it made me think. And, you know, it just goes to show that just as many people are saying, oh, great things about AI. And, indeed, last week I was saying some positive things. We tried, you know, you tried uh, making an image for a book cover. Oh, it was awful, though. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't great. But, you know, it just shows. But it didn't take long to, for it to generate it. Oh, yes. 30 seconds, so something like that. I, I asked when I played around with it. I mean, the image you created was a woman in red coat in graveyard. That wasn't too bad. But I asked it to do... A uh, woman on the beach, on a pebbly beach, holding red shoes. And it had plonked the red shoes where her hand was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there were, some bad, there were some bad efforts. This is Adobe Express, which is currently in beta testing. But we thought we'd try it out. And, um, you know, there are many, many advantages AI is going to bring, but disadvantages too. And it, it does threaten the human performer. And I think that's the, and indeed uh, the creatives. Um, of the world. It's interesting because I saw um, Rachel McLean, who's been on this yeah. podcast. She uh, did a little experiment where she would sort of half write a book and half use AI. Um, I don't know. How... She was pretty dismissive of the results. I don't know how she? far she got into it, but she she wanted to see because she was genuinely curious what AI could do for her. And she, I think, her conclusion was actually it was more work because yeah. she had to sort of sort through and and improve what right. the AI had created. Well, indeed. No one can create an AI cat quite as um, loquacious as Aki, who has just walked into the Hello. into the building and decided to invade the podcast. Um, there was a wider point I was going to make about um, AI, but I've completely forgotten. <laughs> so You're I tired, it. that's why. I am very, very tired. I am, yeah, I am really struggling. So let's get to our interview with Alison Stockham. And uh, her debut novel came out earlier this year, uh, the Cuckoo uh, Sisters, and um, this is uh, a fantastic uh, premise. Yes. It's... You want the best for your sister, but your sister wants your children. Well, she can't have them. She's got <laughs> two of her own. This is the first of uh, her novels that she's uh, published. She's got another one coming out very, very soon indeed. So uh, it's terrific, and it got great reviews yes. and did extremely well on launch. So uh, let's talk to Alison Stockham. We are delighted on the Hopcast Book Show to be speaking to Alison Stockham. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much for having me. And you join us from Cambridge. I am feeling the pang of home Aww. as we speak to you. I, I want to come home. You love Cambridge, don't you? I do. And I'm very <laughs> proud of being from Cambridge. It is a, such a wonderful city. And what a place to be as a writer. Oh, totally. It is a great place, surrounded by literary giants across history. Yeah. It's intimidating. Well, it is a little, isn't it? Uh, you know, and I, I, I used to be, as everyone knows on listen to the show, I used to be a tour around Cambridge, and I'd just be name-dropping some of the greatest authors in the history of the English language and indeed other languages too. Um, oh, yes, we're going... Is it that, like C.S. Lewis? Is he Oxford? Cambridge? He was Oxford. Oh, he was Oxford. You, how could you bring him other place. Honestly. No, I mean, we used to go down Silver Street on my bus and I'd point up to this little window in a tower overlooking the bridge and... That was the room used by Erasmus, no less. You know, it's hey, just a Erasmus. small matter of Erasmus. Travelling guy. And then you'd be going around, there's A.A. Milne's bedroom. Wow. Uh, and then it would be, you know, oh, Isaac Newton used to sit under that apple tree, all that sort of stuff. It, and then you'd actually see literary figures going around. And the one that used to get everyone excited was Stephen Hawking. Mm -hmm. um, 
in his wheelchair. You probably saw him many times because he was always trundling around unaccompanied for some reason. I don't know how he was allowed out. <laughs> there he would be crossing the road without obviously even in a position to look. So uh, there we Well, there I we think do. if you saw Stephen Hawking going in front of your car, you would stop. <laughs> I don't think right. you have a choice. But there we go. So, Alison, sorry about that. We, we took a massive digression. That is the nature of this show. But Cambridge, uh, you're very involved in that literary scene because you work as an event organiser with the Cambridge Literary Festival, which Thank used you. to be known as Cambridge Word Fest when I was growing up. Um, it is a fantastic event and one of those rare festivals that doesn't just happen once a year, right? I know, twice a year. Yeah, twice a year with, with uh, one-off events as well. So we have a lot going on. That must keep you very busy. It does, but because the, the festivals run um, in April and November, it fits in quite well. I kind of sat down with my editor at the beginning of the year and kind of jigsawed up the year in terms of book deadlines and festival deadlines. Um, but it does mean that everything does tend to be full pelt most of the year. Yeah, that sounds like Rebecca's year, I have to say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy to, to manage, though. And uh, in terms of keeping yourself on track, on both tracks what, what's your method do you have like loads of notebooks and post-it notes I'm, and I'm a, a diary and an excel spreadsheet kind of girl so yeah everything has to be written down because I just can't keep it all in my head but because my background uh, before coming into the festival and um, becoming a professional writer was um, film and tv production on the um, logistical side of things that's I've spent 20 years making sure everything's in the right place at the right time um, on budget, on schedule. So it's kind of it's just a life skill now. That's, yeah. that's a really good skill to have. I mean, you know, with us running a business, we, that's the sort of thing we well, should be good at. I mean, it's funny because I'm, I'm from that background too in terms of not making documentaries that you were working in, but I was um, in the journalism, sports journalism side of, of the BBC. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, it's only running a business that actually taught me those skills or at least forced me to really look at that because I always had someone to delegate to someone like you I guess someone probably, like me like yeah keep, kind of thing keep everybody on track yeah yeah I used to rely on people like you but it's um it's a fantastic discipline working in that in that world because in, especially in documentary terms and structuring a story the best documentaries are approached as stories mm -hmm. as opposed to info a, dump. A, yeah info dump bunch of images thrown together bit of music nice voiceover it's a lot more than that there's a lot of thought goes into the way that you're going to structure and what you need to get into a documentary and you've worked on some fantastic programs over the years um after, after you left university I mean what what drew you into that industry well um I always wanted to be a writer ever since I was about eight um and I always thought I was going to go to university to study English um and then I completely fell in love with history at A-level and ended up doing a history degree, um, which I love. And I think it all comes back to the fact that I'm just really interested in people and people's stories. So although um, my degree wasn't related to writing, the idea about finding out how people lived and why people do what they do, which pretty much informed my career ever since. But when I was at uni, I got into the theatre company and from theatre, I got into um, film and from film. Um, into documentary um, and I just think everything's been about storytelling since then so kind of finding out what characters motivations are and, and the kind of the interest of going into all those different disciplines um, came full circle background to writing so yeah I think I've just been chasing stories yeah, but like you like you say, history is it is just stories from the past, isn't it? And it's this mm -hmm. sent on the people. So uh, there is well, a, I think to an, I think to an extent that's true. I think it depends how you approach your history, because certainly when I was doing O level, God, I'm that old. Uh, history, it felt very dry, yes. and actually the best the teachers were the ones who who focused on the characteristics of the people, like Bismarck or whatever I was studying, mm. Metternich. Um, I had a particularly good at um, A level. Um, history teacher who really brought people to life and I'm very much a social historian so um, I do like to look at, at, at the lives of people across history rather than what battle happened at what time less of a military history um, much more social and I think it is I'm just I'm just fascinated by people just people are just brilliant and all the stories and um, the lives that people live 
uh, I just I'm just nosy basically <laughs> and that must play into your approach to fiction then uh, it does absolutely like all of, of the story ideas are all based on what would happen if and if you put somebody in this situation what would they do why would they do it and how did they get there and what makes people behave in the way that they do so I suppose it's quite psychological as well I think possibly if I went back I might study um, psychology at some point as well because I just I just find inner workings of people's minds really fascinating mm, absolutely and what was common in what you were saying there if you don't mind me saying is that you were asking questions mm. and actually one of the people who's, who's commented on one of your books Greg Moss who's been on this show wonderful <laughs> wonderful guy and obviously yeah lovely Greg and one of the great clearest thinkers I think on on the act of, of writing and particularly fiction and obviously he's a playwright as well and his philosophy is around asking questions mm. what he does and I think that's that's comes through in what you're saying too mm. in fact um I run a, a writer's workshop that I've run for for both adults and children as to how to start where do you get the ideas from um and one of the tasks that that we set out is that I get together a lot of pictures um postcards paintings photographs and then I ask people to ask questions of it so who is that person why are they there? Where have they come from? Where are they going? What kind of morning did they have? Who have they had an argument with? What are they holding in their hand? And all that kind of thing. So you can really build up a picture of who this person is and what their life is like. And I realised I used to do this on the tube when I was commuting to London. I would sit and kind of think, what do they do? What's their job? What did they have for breakfast this morning? Um, and you can just build up all kinds of, of lives and stories and threads. And then and then for, for the genre that I write in, um, for kind of psychological suspense, I then think, how far can I push that um, for dramatic effect? Um, and what would happen when I do that? So yeah, asking questions is a great technique. Yeah. We did it once at the petrol station. We did. Yeah. yeah, it's great fun, isn't it? Doing that with like random people. So the random person getting petrol in front of us. We made up a whole life for this person. And, yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. And and indeed, creating Rafe, my yes, character, yes, yes. outside Sainsbury's at Cheshire Oaks. <laughs> and uh, there's this little couple, this little elderly couple. He was quite, he was dapper and, and, and quite tall and still very, it, use the word erect, but you know what I mean, he's, he's bearing. Mm-hmm. I thought you were from Cambridge. You don't say words like that. No, <laughs> no. Um, I did on the bus just just to get a titter occasionally, but um, <laughs> but it, you know he he you know he suddenly was a, a 1940s spy, and she was you know the love interest. interest. Yeah, yeah. And we, Rafe and Violet were born <laughs> from just an observation of a couple walking through. And I wrote went home and wrote the story, didn't I, about how if Rafe. You know how Sainsbury's and indeed all supermarkets changed their shelving arrangements. My parents <laughs> always used to keep a chart of where things were so that they could efficiently write the shopping list in the right order. And if it changed, they went nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Not that elderly, but I just I extrapolated it that Rafe would go completely mad. Yes. And turn into this murderous, go back to his 40 self. Um in a rage. Anyway. Yes, well, I digress. Even... I digress. Yeah, no. <laughs> Let's talk about the Cuckoo Sister, your first novel. So you're taking a situation where you have your sisters who one one of whom want, wants to uh, the best for the other, but your tagline, I love it. But what if your sister wants your children? Yeah, I know. I saw that. I was like, ooh. I was like, well, now, yeah. I mean, that was all based on um, looking at the relationship of sisters. Um, because I have uh, two daughters and I was looking at the dynamics of their relationship and just wondering what that's like, because I have a brother um, and it seems like a very different dynamic. And my mum has a sister. My um, grandmother was one of four sisters. Um, you know, my brother has, uh, my husband has two sisters. My brother is married to a woman who's got two sisters. And I was just looking at that dynamic and thinking, it seems very much like your best friend and your worst enemy all rolled yeah. up into Absolutely. one. Absolutely, I've got you... one of each, so I know exactly what you're talking about, the difference. Yeah, and I was thinking, what would happen if you really pushed that? Like, how far could that go in terms of, you know, you want the best for your sister, but what if your sister wants something really extreme? And then I had been working on um, a book about somebody who ousts somebody from their life, and it, it wasn't working, and I've got about 
20, 22,000 words of it in a drawer somewhere in, in my um, in my files. Uh, and it's just, it, I couldn't work out. It wasn't right. So I put it to one side. And then I was working on another story about somebody who ran away from their life, but I couldn't work out what they were running to or from. And that didn't work either. And I distinctly remember cycling over the Hills Road Bridge when I suddenly thought those are two halves of the same story. Mm. I was like, oh, okay. That's why neither of those two work is because it's only half the book. Um, and then I stopped and had children and it, it nothing got written for a good long time. And then I was looking at the dynamics of, of my daughters and suddenly those three ideas all fell into place. I was like, what if it was two sisters, one who ran away and one who moved in on the other's life? And suddenly mm. there was the cuckoo sister. Brilliant. That is awesome. And, and that, what is that feeling like? The light bulb moment. Well, I hope it you really was a light bulb moment. Like, it, <laughs> I mean, this, this happened now. My eldest is, is 11. So this happened um, probably about eight years ago now. And I still remember very strongly exactly. I can see it in my mind because I'm quite a visual. Um, I've quite a visual memory. Um, and I think that's the, the TV background. Yes. Like things play in my head. Like like film screens, but um, just there was there was a definite ah moment. Like, <laughs> oh my god! I had to remember that I was on a road. <laughs> I had to focus. Um, but yeah, it was a definite moment when you go, oh, okay, now I get it. Now mm. I can. It's a wonderful feeling, isn't it, when that happens? It, it was great, particularly because these other two were so frustrating, and I and I'd wanted to write for for forever um but I had I've got a lot of not finished books the cuckoo sister is the first book I actually ever finished writing um and partly because of this and partly because I changed my writing technique and what's I used to be an editor as I go along mm. I used to write a bit and then I would come back to it and I would read it and I would edit it and then I would keep going and I would demotivate myself out of ever finishing I'm like this is terrible I can't see where it's going I don't know what I'm doing um and then a friend of mine Laura persuaded me to do NaNoWriMo um which um I'm sure your listeners know is where you agree to write 50,000 words in the month of November and when you're writing 50,000 words in a month you haven't got time to edit as you go you've just got to get the words down and you have to allow the words to be awful and you have to allow the words to meander and or at least I do anyway I can't write that fast um and so I did it at the end of November so I got 50,000 words that's half a book what if I just keep going like this instead of editing in let's just let's just get the whole thing down so I took December off and then in January I kept going not at that same speed but then by the middle of that year I had the the whole first draft it was the first book I'd ever actually finished I I got to write the end of draft one which any writer will know is nowhere near the end of the actual <laughs> book but then I could see what I was looking at and it was that mo- another moment when I just thought oh okay I have to write a really rough loose first draft and then I can see what I've got and then I can move it and edit it and stretch so yeah those two things changed everything that's that is interesting I don't think I've ever come across that before someone who's almost flipped their process and then mm. yeah that's that's a a big leap isn't it a, yeah. a, a huge change but also a leap of faith really and isn't it interesting that NaNoWriMo would, would have that impact that you yep. get to the point but I mean now now you now you're released from the the pressure of revising scenes because a lot of people do advise that you know what they'll do is they'll they'll leave it at a certain point and come back to it in the morning have a look and then they'll write some more but yeah. actually that's counterproductive in your for your uh, situation. Yeah, I mean, I know there are there are writers. I know uh, Laura um, uh, Stephenson um, writes and edits and writes and edits, and it works beautifully for her. But no, I just I can't do that. I think it's because I'm partly a planner and partly a plotter, mm. so I have a rough idea of where I'm going. But sometimes it goes off in tangents and. I mean, there was a third character in the Cookie Sister that that disappeared entirely within the first draft because I realised they weren't adding anything, so I just stopped writing them. But then I had to come back and take them out. Um, and uh, and actually, with the Cookie Sister, I cut the first 
30,000 words because I'd started in the wrong place. And then a good friend of mine advised that I lost the first chapter, took the second two and merged them. So actually the, there was a large chunk from the beginning that never made it into the book. Um, and I learned that for the second book that I needed to start much further into the story than um, I thought I needed to. And in fact, actually the very first chapter that I wrote for, for the second book, The Silent Friend, is the first chapter it stayed because I started it in the right place this time. But always learning, working out how to do it. No, absolutely. And, and that's part of the joy of, of doing this. It's also one of the frustrations, I, I suppose. But so we're talking about uh, from idea to publication earlier this year so eight years at which stage were you in a position to present the manuscript were you happy with it enough to go off to agents and and, and further into the world mm. so um I did Nano NaNoWriMo in 2018 um I drafted the rest of it in 2019 and then edited it for the rest of that year so it was done at the beginning of of 2020 um, I had entered the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize um, and uh, in 2019 and didn't get anywhere because that 30,000 words at the beginning needed to come out. Um, and then I, I re-entered it at the beginning of, of 2020 and was long-listed. And that was really helpful um, in terms of um, being encouraged to keep going, to have you know, an, a significant prize saying, you know, there is something here, keep going. I don't think it was quite ready to go out even then. Um, but by that point, I was like, yeah, I think a lot of people send out their first book a bit soon, possibly. And I think maybe mm -hmm. I did. But I'm very lucky that um, uh, the agent who I signed with, um, my lovely agent, Marianne Gunn O'Connor, um, read it and said, it's it's not quite ready to go out, but I would love to work with you on it. Um, so um, we did that. So, yeah, I guess a year about a year to, to write and edit and then I sent it out a little bit early and then um, Marianne and I spent 2020 working on it uh, and it went out at the end of 20 at the end no, the beginning of 2021 that that time is all a bit of a, a yeah a <laughs> well with the pandemic as well I mean it's just a, a blob isn't it yeah People, I've it lost really is I mean that time I was remember thinking I'm because I'm a freelancer before I joined the literary festival I was like I'm going to have so much more time my youngest is in primary school she she would have started um because the year that I was writing it she was still at preschool so she was home quite a lot of the time and uh then of course lockdown happened and I was homeschooling two children um I had less time than I'd had in a very long time <laughs> Um, and I was also doing a, a Faber course uh, in 2020 as well so actually 2020 was a bit of a nightmare but um it did mean that that I didn't get the opportunity to stress too much about being out on careering to agents because there just wasn't time to think about it. Um, but yeah, so 2020, 2021 was when it kind of all, all started. And signed to Boldwood. Now, they are one of the big success stories of the last two or three years, really, in, in British publishing. Mm. Um, you know and that's reflected in the awards they've been picking up but I mean their sales are, are, are monumental as well right we're not yeah. jealous at all no they, I mean, are, they are phenomenal yeah they are a, a force to be reckoned with yeah they really are so what's your relationship like with them and how much how how directive are they uh towards you do you do you, you know or, or how much is it a collaboration it's a really lovely working relationship I love working with Boldwood there are a bunch of fantastic enthusiastic communicative lovely people um it definitely feels like a working partnership um and it's it's been a joy actually yeah it's been really great oh that's true i mean you know that's that's so important so in the next book coming out very very soon in fact as this podcast goes out it'll be a week away yeah, yeah how did you manage to do that one so quickly that's what i want to know <laughs> well um i i'm trying to think who gave me this piece of advice and I, I genuinely can't remember but it was when I went out on submission and they said the best thing to do when you're on submission is just write the next one um partly because the writing is the only bit of the process you can really control I have learned this very very much in the last couple of years that as a writer the only part of the process that you have direct control over is your writing so when I went out on submission to publication to publishers um I drafted what will what became the silent friend book two um which 
also helped because then I felt I didn't have all of my eggs in one basket. A bit like in TV, when you're pitching something, you could go into a pitch meeting with this idea that you're there to have the meeting about and the commissioner might say, "Mm, I'm not so sure about it. What else have you got? And you've always got to have something else in your back pocket to go, okay, well, how about this or this or this? And sometimes you end up getting commissioned for something that you weren't meeting about in the first place. So I kind of had that in the back of my of my mind when I was, was out on public out on um, submission to the publishers that if I had another book ready, then if if the Kiku sister didn't get picked up or for whatever reason it wasn't it that wasn't the end of the road, I had another another book to work on. Um, so actually, by the time I signed with Boldwood, um, I had a draft of of the Silent Friend already written. Um, so then over this year, while um, the first book came out with the Cuckoo Sister. And um, we've been getting ready uh, for book two. Excellent. And what about book, uh, book three? three. <laughs> book three, I'm actually writing book three at the moment. The first draft of that is due just at the uh, end of the school term. Good timing. Um, yeah, that's quite so that, that's due out next year. Wow. Excellent. Fantastic. Oh, wonderful. It sounds like you're on a wall. So what's the, <laughs> what's the premise of The Silent Friend? What's your elevator pitch to us? Oh, you know, this is the first time I have done the elevator pitch. Oh, oh okay. Well, this is super fresh. It is about uh, Louise, who is trying to escape her past, um, but gets tied up in a situation with her new friend, Isabel, that she knows more about than Isabel is aware of. Um, and it's about the redemptive power of friendship. And if you can ever really outrun your past. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can see <laughs> Pre-order already going in from yeah, this half of Yeah, I, I love any of these books that, that go into the minds and the relationships, so it does sound oh, like I, a I, thing. <laughs> and, and, in many ways, I do too. It's just that I wouldn't seem buying one. Well, because I buy it and you can yeah, just read yeah. it for free. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, I'm contractually obliged to say that pre-order is available now. Uh, yeah. e-book, paper book, <laughs> all available now. Yeah, absolutely. In, in terms of um, the Literary Festival, um, what doors does that open up for you now working in that environment the, the people you meet the opportunities the actually the way that you can influence what what's put out there as well um well I have to say that I don't get to decide who goes on the lineup right um but uh I but of course I can um say this book was really good this author is fantastic um but it's mainly just the inspiration of the people that that we have on the lineup because we have such a wide range of people from fiction to non-fiction from debuts through to you know career groundbreaking writers um and I find generally writers are a very generous bunch of people and I've had some really fantastic um pieces of advice Rose Tremaine who gave me some great advice about editing Greg and Kate Moss who were really um, lovely about uh, the new book coming out um, had a lovely chat with with uh, Colm Torbeen when we were I was on submission and he was like hang in there my first book two took two years to find a home it will happen stay positive and actually one of the I think it might have even been a WordFest event because I've been a big fan of, of uh, the literary festival um, since its WordFest days and there was Kate Grenville who came across um from Australia and she was doing two events and one of them was in Cambridge and it was her technique which was get it down fix it up later and I actually have that on a post-it note every time I'm drafting so I think it's the the inspiration of being around people who have made a career out of it and the advice that they are generous in giving so yeah I think that's very true we've found that haven't we festivals without question once we've overcome our own reticence to actually talk to people not in the sense that we're we're overawed I suppose is the word I would use sometimes you especially when there's a lot of well-known writers in the in the same space you just think oh <laughs> <laughs> what do I say we're, we're, which is harrogatitis as we call it yeah um where you know we go every year and we walk through and Rankin walks we, past we and... stride in purposefully and then we see the authors the bank of authors that gathered around in a circle and we just suddenly our confidence just like that. And then you say, "Shall I get you a gin and tonic?" Yeah. <laughs> like courage. That's been a bit weird, though, doesn't it? When you're like next to, I don't know, we've we've had Booker Prize winners and you know um, Nobel Prize for literature. Just gotta go. I'm a writer as well. Feels a bit weird. You're gonna go. I have my my little new book out. Um, but I think it, one of the writers said, "You've got to remember that 
everybody at one point was a debut novelist mm. everybody um everybody who is now you know top of their game at one point was looking for an agent um and you know they've all been there so they're generally really lovely and supportive I think for me at the festival the important thing is to remember that they're there to to do a job and I, I can't um interrupt that process so for example we had uh, Jarvis Cocker who came to the festival a couple of years ago um in fact no last year and I'm a huge pulp fan um <laughs> but he very clearly was in the zone he needed to focus on what he was doing so I you know just kind of got on with my job and made sure that everything was fine and that, all, that everything was all ready for his event and then when his event was over and he was done he was clearly much more open to, to having a quick chat and it's just I think for me it's finding that making sure that I don't cross any lines between the two jobs because obviously when I'm working for the literary festival I'm there to work for the literary festival mm. not to network as a writer um, but there are moments when both are possible and there mm. are moments where one of those is not appropriate and having to make sure that I find that balance yeah no I can understand that I think so I think they, they might get a little nervous when they're about to mm. there, is, there is there is a certain thing about Cambridge I think the fact is that that, you know it's obviously a big draw as a place it, it's not a you know it, it, you're pushing it at a half open door I reckon when you're inviting authors to come and speak in Cambridge <laughs> but but it is also an intimidating environment I mean some it's, of the it's, it's intellectual isn't it it's, well I mean you, you I mean I know that the Cambridge Union building is used as one of the venues and then you're talking about the old schools opposite St John's College which is mm. you know in the Divinity School and all these sort of things and you know are, all these places are amazing venues mm. but they have tremendous history yeah bears down upon people I think mm. there have definitely been some people who um might not you know writing might not be their first um the first thing that people know them for and you can definitely see that kind of intimidation happening but we are a very welcoming festival everyone's like everyone's welcome do come in everyone's on the lineup for a reason on their own their own talents and their own merits um and the audience there and excited to see them so we just we try and make it as non-intimidating as possible um but yes the buildings do definitely have a gravitas about them when you think who's who's walked up those stairs before <laughs> and yeah there's a definite feeling to it Oh, with that question, with that question. Um, I, I, I've got to ask this. Is this a cheeky question? And we're about to get to Rebecca's random one. So that's even probably going to be it's cheeky. It's cheeky. No. <laughs> oh, oh, good. Okay, good. Um, I, I tell a story and I, I've told the story on the podcast of an occasion when I was working at Heifers and Jeffrey Archer um... <laughs> stormed in one day. He lives in Grantchester, just around the corner. Mm. And he goes in and says, why are my books not in the front window? Um I've got a new one out. It should be in the front window, la, la, la. And being heifers, being the family firm that it was then, mm. they, next day, we were <laughs> frantically creating the most amazing Jeffrey Archer display ever. Have you ever walked into heifers and demanded to know <laughs> where the cuckoo sister is? <laughs> I haven't, no, no. Um, I do love heifers. They are the, the booksellers for the festival and they are an amazing team. Um, and I would um, always... Um, understand that they have their own priorities and the bookshop needs to run how the bookshop needs to run I'm also not not quite on the Jeffrey Archer level of famous yet either so I couldn't get away with that I do wonder if I'll if any authors they go into a shop and they see their book on the shelf but sometimes they have some face up and they might sort of oh, just swap that oh, they do. I mean I know people do do that you know yeah I might have turned some of my friends books out face out I think it's easier to do it for other people yeah a friend of mine um Julia Late who wrote a, a brilliant book called The Disappearance of Lydia Harvey um I went into Waterstones I was like it's been reviewed in the Guardian why is it not in your reviewed section it should be down here at the front she's a local author she could sign some while she's here you know and Julia's in the background going oh my god stop it stop yeah. it <laughs> uh, I can do it for her um I'm not sure I could do it for myself. I think no, I could do it for Because yeah. I, I could do it for our authors. I could quite happily wander into Waterstones. And... Well, yeah, I think, I, think, I think what I'm trying to say is that marks out Geoffrey Archer as a different type of person to the rest of us. Um, and I'm being polite there. Anyway, let's get to the moment we've well, not all been waiting for. It's been a fabulous interview. And thank you so much. Thank Alison. you for having me. It's been Here great. We go. Rebecca's random question. 
Okay. Right. So the week, the podcast, the week before we have a guest, I have to remember the name of the guest in the following week because we'll say next week we're speaking to blah de blah. And so to remember your name, I used a visual technique. I had you in stocks eating ham. Right. So I want to know, do you have any techniques for remembering things? Because mine is very visual. I create this little image. That's a great question, because it it reminds me um, at my wedding when my um, husband's aunt told me that no one would ever be able to spell my name because everybody would always um, think it was Stockholm um, as in the city. And she said, you just need to tell them it's stock like soup, ham like sandwich. And I don't think I've ever used that to spell my name, but I have used that anecdote quite a lot because I thought it was quite funny. Yeah. Um, what sort of stock do I have? I had you in stocks. <laughs> what a, is that like a, a version of a review? You're in the stocks. <laughs> um, I think I'm, I'm quite visual as well, but to remember things, I genuinely have to write them down. Um, if I've gone through the action of writing something down, it tends to go in, whereas if I don't write it down, it doesn't stick. Um, so maybe maybe it's just how my brain works with words. I think I have to use words. I was saying to somebody earlier today that I have real trouble remembering numbers, but I can always remember words. That's interesting. And I, I don't have a problem with numbers because I have synesthesia, which means I see numbers as colours. So oh, handy. It, it is really handy. So just, we, we play tennis at a court where there's a padlock and you have to remember the, the code. And it's dark orange, light orange, light orange, white. <laughs> we see for codes, if there's something like that, I'd have to remember it in like a in a pattern. You know, if you have like a a keyboard, I'd have to be like top right, bottom left, straight across and up, like in a pattern. But even then, I'd be looking at it going, no, and I mix them up, and I swap them around, <laughs> forget my pin number. <laughs> No, numbers, numbers and I are not friends, which is funny because in TV I used to look after the budget. Pound sign or a dollar sign in front of it, I'm fine. Like I can remember money stuff, but numbers without that too abstract. My brain doesn't like it. No. And what about you? If you had to remember someone's name. Yes. How um, do you do it? I just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. Oh right. Um in my head or out verbally and uh and this is what I used to do before I used to go and do interviews. Um, because before I was in sport where, you know, generally speaking, you're interviewing people that are well known, which mm. is slightly different to when you're in local radio. It could be, you know, anybody it could be a beekeeper or a, you know, funeral director or something. And you'd have to try and remember their names. because uh, I didn't want to have to refer to my notes as I met them, you know, they looked terrible. Um, and that was that was the thing of, you know, probably repeating it 10 times in the car over. Mm. And actually, the other thing I would do is sometimes rehearse. If I was a little uncertain on the subject, you'd or particularly when I was going to do a football commentary, you'd find me commentating on imaginary football <laughs> going up the motorway, just getting into the flow. That's a good idea, though. It was like my warm up. Because um, mm. when you get to the ground, it's so pressured. You know, there's the there's the technical side of it so you'd be on your own probably trying to get all the kit to work and I mean I went to games and places where the they used to use a thing called ISDN which was the the, the, the quality sound that you used to get in, yeah. in, in all the way through really now it's all, all changed um but the the, the the ISDN point would be smashed so what would you no. do in that situation and then you're in a blind panic trying to get ready to go on air on five live or whatever it is uh, and you lose all that time and also you've got all your notes you've you've done probably three days worth of prep of cribbing up writing notes and trying to memorize stuff it was uh so the warm-up was really important it, yes. you know almost being able to you couldn't repeat those facts and look down at a sheet to do it because you're taking your eye off the pitch so you'd have to have them memorized and and be able to say them out loud and actually that's the technique i used to do my tour mm. of Cambridge was actually to go around on foot or on, on the bus that I worked on just repeating stuff until it's stuck you know not memory cards or anything like that no. just, just you know you're, and, you're the the world's expert on Cambridge's historic bits <laughs> there, there are many Here's a question. Did, did you actually stick to the facts or are you like one of the oh, no. now you ask that the guys on the punts it's brilliant 
when you're from Cambridge, when you're on the river and you can hear which ones are telling the truth and which ones are just making it up as they go along. And some of the stories they come up with are brilliant. Like they sound really convincing despite being completely inaccurate. One of his made up stories is in a book. A it's, fact. it's now canonical Cambridge history. And I've mm. not long since told this one on the podcast, but basically um, as we used to um, have a bus stop in Drummer Street bus station, mm. overlooking the corner of Emmanuel College. There's a very high wall. It's not, nothing particularly wonderful about it. But when you look over, there's a swimming pool. And mm. then beyond that is a big duck pond. And <laughs> an American, this is my first day as a tour guide. And he goes, gee, those ducks are huge. <laughs> and at which point, my brain goes quick as a flash. Oh, yes, that's because the ducks, one is offered and uh, is a gift to each fellow as they're appointed to the college. And as a result of that, the fellows have a competition to get the ground staff to feed their ducks <laughs> um, and, and you know make sure that they are the fattest ducks in Emmanuel College because they're the best looked after. All right, that makes sense. And then I embellished this yet further when I told this story, because often you get stuck in drama street because traffic was awful. Mm. And then the story was, well, when that, when that fellow passes on, the duck is served at their memorial dinner. <laughs> and it's in a book. It's in a book now. <laughs> It's it's canonical Cambridge history, the Emmanuel Ducks. The Emmanuel it's Ducks. Totally untrue. The Emmanuel Memorial Duck Dinner. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, carrying the great ceremony. And I was I was using sort of images of Tom Sharp and the serving swan in, in Porterhouse Blue. Um, I mean, it sounds like it could fit, right? You know. Yeah, oh. absolutely. Well, the beauty of Cambridge is that you know sometimes the fact and fiction it, it's so hard to differentiate yeah, but there are so many wonderful things you can look at Henry VIII's chair leg at Trinity College Gatehouse everyone knows of you know at one point it was a bicycle pump when, when it got stolen and another time it was a an adult toy in, you know um, are you being Cambridge again yeah and then and then the Senate House roof the famous time when students from the engineering department managed to build a car on top of the Senate House roof just before the degree day ceremony and just the risks they took to, to achieve that uh, without being discovered and it took yeah. engineers three days to get it down again you know it's just amazing stuff yeah and then just be on on the streets of Cambridge and you would see someone famous walking around whether it be Stephen Fry, Clive James, Jermaine Greer. Well we did see Jermaine Greer once didn't we in a, mm. in a holiday inn in Duxford here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah see my Jermaine Greer story is in the University College Library so that's a bit more a bit more university connected but yeah, yeah it is it's a very inspiring place to be and um when I used to work at Marks and Spencer's I always used to say to the you know a tourist would say you know can you give me some advice and mine would always be look up because you know you've got all the modern shop fronts but you look up and it's all amazing architecture and fascinating buildings from different different areas and obviously stuff that you can see you know, going on in people's windows and the colleges and like you know, look up you worked at Marks and Spencer in Cambridge and <laughs> uh, this is this is stretching the interview somewhat but uh yes the the, the famous time Stephen Hawking came in to buy underpants uh <laughs> And he came rolling out of the, the lift. Uh, this is the uh, the original branch of Marks and Spencer, not the one that used to be a cinema, but the one um, yeah. on top of the boots. And um, he comes upstairs and he rolls up to me and goes, I would like three pairs, medium blue, underpants. <laughs> and so, so I had to go and fetch him up. No, not white pants. They are ugly. <laughs> yeah, so I served them. Um, Stephen Hawking. That's one of your claim to fame, yes. Yeah. You, you... <laughs> there you go. And it's amazing. And, and Clive James bought a suit from me. Oh, that's, I like that one. Yeah, he's, he's still my hero. Uh, anyway, look, Alison, it has been an absolute pleasure. So uh, where can people find you online? Um, I am on uh, Twitter and Instagram and Facebook under either Alison Stockham or Alison Stockham Author. Um, and uh, website is hopefully going up uh, this summer. It's a task that never made it to the top of the to-do list. Um, mm -hmm. But it's been absolutely lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about the Cuckoo Sister and Silent Friend and all things Cambridge. It's been great. Thank you. 
Oh, our oh, pleasure. Thank you for coming. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And good luck with the, the Silent Friend coming out very shortly. Thank you. Well, it turned out that um, Alison and I went to the, a few years apart, she's a bit younger than me, uh, to the same school in Cambridge, Hills Row Sixth Form College. And I know that there's at least one more listener who went there too. Who's that then? Uh, well, my good friend Beach. Oh, hello, Beach. Who listens every <laughs> week, which is really sweet. And um, yeah, it was a, an amazing place. And uh, as I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, it's becoming a bit of a cliche, um, it uh, has a room, or I hope it still has a room, which with my mum's name on it. It does, yeah. The Pat apparently. Hobart room. But so, we, yeah. So when you talk about Hills Road Sixth mm. Form College, you you talk you so sort of such fond yeah. memories of it, mm. and you know you still I sense that that's a feeling of of loyalty and mm. um and you did a lot of performing, didn't you? I did all sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, I was uh, I was student governor. I sort of head of school, basically. Um, I performed in lots of theatrical things. I was captain of hockey. I even played cricket for the school, even though I was rubbish. Um, and I just had the time of my life. And it, it, it was the place I've been happiest. You know, of all the institutions and things I went through, it was definitely the place I was happiest. Yes. So do you think it had a, a certain... Um... Uh, I suppose an ethos for letting people be themselves a bit more than other institutions, maybe. Or... Well, the, certainly the one I went to before that, which was an all boys school, absolutely 100% much more freedom. But actually, compared to its compatriots in the city, it was a lot more restrictive. In fact, for a lot of people who'd gone, oh. who'd come from um, the village colleges system, which is a, sort of unique to Cambridgeshire, um, they would, in, in their, uh, what is now, what, year 11, but was the fifth form yeah. in our day, they had a lot more freedom as fifth formers than they did when they got to Hills Road. And there were quite a few of them, quite a few people I knew freaked out about just how regimented they felt it was. Um, and there were all sorts of things they did there to try and cut out certain things that were going on. So, for instance, um, our principal... Colin Greenhouse, uh, was showing some parents around one day and he came into the music room and there was a rock band playing in the music room. Horror. Anyway, yeah. he banned all rock music, the playing of recorded rock music, the <laughs> playing of music by anyone in the school that could be considered rock. Um, it didn't last very long. It was about a 48-hour ban because, you know, Basically, we, we beat a path to his door and demanded it overturned. I mean, this is the the um, the educational institution that created Pink Floyd. Yeah, so there's a bit of irony there then. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I mean, it, but a wonderful place, um, full of incredibly bright and uh, uh, committed people. And you. And me, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was none of those things, really. But, uh, no, I had a great time. So anyway. We saw a school production this week, didn't we? We did, yeah. Um, it was Returned to the Flip Forbidden Planet, which is an adaptation of The Tempest, mixed with rock and roll tunes from the 50s and 60s. Uh, and your son, Josh, was one of the cast members and did a great job. Yes, it was brilliant. Um, There's some superstar performers there, I have to say. Yes. In that school. No, I think my boys are very lucky because it's a state school. It's a grammar, but it's a state grammar but they, uh, they've always made a big thing about the end of year performance, the yeah. musical. Yeah, um, the quality was was superb. You know, the staging of it, the music, the performances, and the head teacher on electric guitar. Very yeah, impressive. now that really is cool. That's a complete <laughs> contrast to Colin Greenhouse. <laughs> I, I can tell you. I was thinking that. Yeah, yeah, he wouldn't ban rock music. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Uh, no, that's that's very true. Well, later in the week, um, it's a really busy week this week, as I mentioned. I've got to get this thing done because. Uh, on uh, Wednesday, I'm going to the first day of the Ashes at Old Trafford. I thought we'd had the Ashes. Well, uh, this is the fourth test of the five that they're playing. So, it's the, yes, we've had three matches so far. Uh, then Thursday, it is the graduation of my son Ben from Loughborough University, which is going to be fantastic. Yes, and then we're Friday, off to Harrogate. we're off to Harrogate. So we but are But then coming. on Sunday, you're off to some golf or something. Yeah, the Open Championship at Hoylake. Um, so yes, I mean a busy week, um, and I've, you know I'm not not denying it's going to be a great week. Hopefully, it all fits together logistically and everything else. 
but a busy one. Yes, a busy one. So, uh, with that thought, we ought to mention who our guest is. Uh, we're going to be speaking to them at Harrogate. And it's the author, Liz Mystery. Yes, we've been me- meaning to speak to Liz for a very long time. And we just haven't been able to coordinate. And then um, when we finally settled on a week, Liz said to me, oh, that's just before Harrogate. And so we thought, why not combine the two? So we're going to speak to Liz at Harrogate. We are. And, of course, we will bring you the sight, the sounds and the smells. Uh, we're, not, they... we're not bringing the smells. <laughs> <laughs> of Mark Billingham's beer breath. No, uh, we, we'll be bringing some uh, some further voices and uh, one or two Hobek authors will be there too. So we look forward to seeing them. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's a big time. Now, we're not going to sort of just spend our entire days in the Harrogate beer tent. It's just too overwhelming. So we'll do it in smaller doses this year, I think. Yes. And, and, and make mo- more use. Yeah, we'll make more use of being in Harrogate. But uh, it should be an exciting show when we speak to Liz Mystery and indeed Mystery Guests next week. Liz Mystery Guests. Yeah. <laughs> so it just remains for me, Adrian Hobart. And me, Rebecca Collins. To thank you for joining us on the Hobcast Book Show. And thanks for listening to us. Don't forget to go to our website, www.hobeck.net, for details of our authors, our books, our audiobooks, and everything else and archpub.net for our publishing services element. Uh, But uh, the other thing we'd like to remind you to do is to subscribe to this podcast. If you're new to us, you're very welcome. And it's like this every week. Total chaos. No, 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 no. It's fascinating and and insightful every week. Utter chaos uh, and insightful. But uh, we wish you a wonderful and... Creative. Week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to The Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.